so did you save room for dessert? That's the title, that's the title of the message this morning. Did you save room for dessert? And let me save those of you that scored high on the verbal uh, part of the SAT. Uh, you're a journalist or a writer. Uh, if that title is written somewhere, I know that it doesn't spell dessert. It spells desert. Did you save room for desert, which is the actual title? Did you save room? Before we get to that, though, um, you know that question that they ask you at the end of the meal, um, did you save room for dessert, is a rhetorical question, right? No one, ever sa- no one ever saves room for dessert. When you go out to eat, they give you a portion that's twice what you would ever eat for any dinner. So did you save room for dessert is no. I'll have some chocolate cake. That's how, that's how that goes. It doesn't really matter if you saved room or not. No, I'll take the creme brulee because not only do I like sugar, I want to have to break through a, a barrier of sugar to get to the dessert. I, that's how much I love it. But the question is, did you save room for desert? Like dessert, um, getting some desert in your life has nothing to do with whether you've made room for it or not. There's going to be some desert. Life comes, as you know, um, with various types and sizes of deserts. Some of you know all too well because you, uh, you've, you've been there, you've been in the desert, you're, you're in it now, or you're anticipating, um, not necessarily from a pessimistic point of view, but maybe, but that, that there is a desert uh, coming. You can count on it. Life, you could describe life as a desert of sorts. You're, you're, you're busy, but you feel under-equipped to do what you're busy doing. You uh, have these... Um, uh, significant responsibilities, but you, you wonder if uh, you're enough. You're surrounded uh, by people uh, and circumstances that are discouraging, and uh, you can do very little about it because you're hanging on to a very thin thread of encouragement yourself. You may be in the midst of uh, grief, a significant desert, a broken dream, a harsh um, future reality, maybe even. You can feel it coming or loss of some sort. It's not something that we even like to admit, even when we know from the tip of our toe to the top of our head that it's true, it's real. Life is always got threads, if not deserts of grief and difficulty and insufficiency amidst it. And the Jesus follower, the Jesus follower understands that this is true about life. (laughs) And at the risk of being even more downcasting and negative to start off a message than possible, we're all going to die in that desert. This life is a desert and it's going to come to an end.
the Jesus follower knows that there's something other than the desert that this world is and can be that's awaiting us. It's described in terms that are, of course, metaphorical, but, but clear that the future hope that we have in Christ is something different. Uh, a land flowing with milk and honey, with lakes of glass and roads of gold. We don't get the picture of a desert when the Bible describes the future that the believer can imagine. A safe and secure, uh, beautifully awesome, refreshing getaway. Maybe you imagine a garden of deliciously adorned fruit trees and berry bushes and, uh, you know, just mounds of vegetables and nuts and even flowers and relaxing natural hot springs and cool fresh lakes and majestic mountainscapes and lush expansive valleys teeming with with life and a picture of all that is as it is supposed to have been and you in the middle of it full of confidence and energy and gratitude with well-adjusted, maturing, healthy children, trusted friendships, loyal family. Can you imagine? Perfectly balanced schedule, endless energy, you're well-rested, no rush, plenty of time. Seems like a fantasy world, doesn't it? You can feel it resonating in your soul. Oh, can I go there? Where's the brochure? What does it cost? And to risk really even further disappointment in our lives, we don't even sometimes want to hope for something like that. It seems crazy. But we can, but we can have hope not only for something like that in the future, but the taste of it, the beginnings of it, the, the sense of it. Now, this place of rest and productivity and confidence and contentment and provision and protection. Because in God, we have a hope that the world cannot provide a concrete hope. And here's the kicker. Like I said, God begins to bring this future about in this world. In the middle of this often desert-like life is a hope and a reality that begins to open the curtain and show us and allow us to experience the goodness of God. We've been looking at uh, a letter from a guy named Peter, one of Jesus' closest companions and boldest disciples. We have words that this man wrote We have copies of those words and manuscripts that date back um, into the 
6th century. Many pieces of scripture go back as early as the hundreds and two hundreds of AD. We have those words. The, the very first ponderings and, and, and thoughts and even application of this gospel message that Jesus brought, we have those who learned it firsthand from the one who brought the word and how the Spirit of God began to work it out in these early stages of what we know now to be a worldwide church and people of God. The, the, the Peter one comes from like a, a, a document that's referred to in academia as, as Papyrus 74. It has uh, some acts in it. It's got First uh, and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and and Jude. You can look at it. You can you can see it. Most of us can't read it because it's in Greek or Aramaic, but it's it's there. We've been kicking through this. Pray for Adam. He's sick this week. Got sick somehow. He didn't ask me if he could do that. He is. Pray for him. Uh, and, and I wanted to start in verse uh, 21 of chapter 1 in Peter. I want you to be reminded of what we've been reading, and I want to sort of couch today in this space here. It goes like this. To this you were called. He just got done laying out the gospel as we understand it from Jesus that we've been forgiven and secured a place in heaven, an inheritance that, that cannot be taken away, that cannot uh, perish, like the hopes of this world. He says, you have it. To this you were called, to this life of hope, because Christ suffered for you and left you an example that you could follow in his steps. Through him, Christ, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. That's Romans 1. I read a couple other verses before that, but that's Romans 1, 21. Through him, you, through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. It's hard to come... It, it's, it's hard to find a dynamic, a dynamic more critical to life than hope. It's hard to find any kind of a shaping dynamic in life, uh, something that changes the mind and changes the heart more significantly than hope does or changes the mind and our heart more significantly than the lack of hope. And few really ever really understand that direction, direct connection that we have to hope with God and its impact on our life. Few realize how hope is directly connected to God. For humans, <laughs> for humans. Like, what I mean is, like, animals and plants don't need hope or God, for that matter, in a sense, for them to become who or what they're to become. A raccoon is going to become a full raccoon in its life. 
It doesn't have to make any moral decisions. It doesn't have to decide this or decide that. It's not going to be discouraged or encouraged. Same thing with an apple tree. An apple tree is not going to spend any part of its life wishing that it was an orange tree. It's going to be an apple tree, and it's going to be a full apple tree given the right context that it's supposed to be in, right? So it's those things are going to... Humans, on the other hand, have been given free will. They have to decide some things, and those decisions dictate the future of that person's flourishing or lack of flourishing. Humans are rational beings, gifted with free will, to choose to live in accordance with the design of their designer or not. Goats and dogs and orange trees and apple trees and berry bushes are going to live according to their design, period. Humans are involved in that equation. And all human lives and the societies that they, that they build will, without fail, reflect those decisions and will cause either a flourishing or a self-destruction in the process. Listen to how Paul puts it in his letter to the church in Rome. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, this is Romans 1, 20 through like 25, um, uh, his divine power have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Yet, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. And listen, their thinking became futile, and their hearts were darkened and became foolish. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They turned away from God and their minds became darkened, and their hearts and their passions got twisted, and we read on and we see that their behaviors got out of whack, and they got to the point where they started encouraging these behaviors in other people. They completely lose hope that there's any way that they can flourish, and it's connected directly to our acknowledgement of God. So God gives them over to their sinful desires, their hearts, their sexual impurity, the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Humans make decisions, and the most important one that you will ever make in your life is who is God and where do you place him? Where he is and belongs or beneath you as your tool or your uh, for, for your use. When we don't worship God, when we don't put him in his place, when we don't let him be the center of all things, we see how the human life becomes, or devolves, rather. Just, it self-destructs. And it cycles in on itself. As one drifts from, drifts from God, they deteriorate. And as they deteriorate, they lose confidence. 
right? As they lose confidence, they lose hope. And as they lose hope, they lose even more sight of God, rinse and repeat, and it just goes down. When a person has hope, it almost literally means they believe they have the reason to, uh, and, the, and the capacity to aspire to something greater, the ability to rise. Even in a strictly world context, that's true. Right? Apart from God, in the world that we live in, you can have some kind of worldly hope if you feel like you have the means and the capacity and the pathway to achieve whatever this world says is most important. The generations that preceded me post-World War II sort of lived that out, and, and myself included to a great degree. There were opportunities and, and, and availabilities and, and, and means in which we could accomplish things and build a resume that we can be proud of, strictly from a worldly sense. Most of us eventually realize that ladder is leaning against the wrong wall at some point. Nonetheless, if we think we can do it, whatever it is that is declared to be good to do, we have hope. A hopeless person, again, in the world context, does not believe, when they don't believe they can rise above their current content of their character or their circumstances or just knows they cannot make it or it's been proven time again that they can't, they lose hope. The generations that follow me, and these are broad, sweeping generations, and I sit right at the cross-sections. I kind of live in both of those worlds. There's a part of my existence that believes I can accomplish things and I have accomplished things and then there's a part of me that thinks I don't know if I'm going to accomplish what I should accomplish in this lifetime. I have hope and I can be hopeless. Hopelessness in the generations that follow is becoming cute. It's becoming commonplace. It's becoming almost unavoidable. I think it's one of the most disturbing things that I see when I uh, see the world around me, is that the generations follow. Look at the lives and the generations that preceded them. And even in their success, they look at that success and go, I don't want any part of that, which I can understand to a certain degree. They don't feel like they can do anything about it. And they're hopeless. It's a terrible thing to see. Mental health, physical health, deteriorating. And this very weird dynamic that's going on right now where you just deny those realities. We actually try to, try to reconfigure mental health into something that's good. It's, it's, it's your truth. It's your whatever. Same thing with physical health. No matter how physically unhealthy you are, there's this sort of movement afoot that says, don't tell me that I'm unhealthy. I am who I am. We're so hopeless that we're contorting stuff that is clearly wrong or negative or diseased about us and saying, no, it's, it's okay. It's actually good. The hopelessness is so deep. We can't even muster the 
courage to face the truth about our condition in order to make some sort of progress or way out of it. We end up with the current situation we have where the rates of anxiety and depression and suicidality are higher than they've ever been. Hopelessness is severe. Listen again to chapter 1, verse 21, 1 Peter. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. This was amazing news for this group of people. While they sat there and read Peter's words, and maybe they were probably already learning these concepts from some of the uh, probably the Gospel of Mark and, and some of those that had planted the churches that they were in, they're reading again here that although they may look around at their own life and feel hopeless to do anything about their circumstances or to rise above it, this message of this suffering servant and Savior that was buried and raised from the dead, the God of that man messaged out that you can put your hope in something beyond this world, God. Your hope, your faith are in God. He goes on, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been, listen to this, born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God, which is the gospel. Peter's saying again and again, take your eyes off of the things of this world that are going to perish and recognize that you have been given a gift, an offering through faith to be a part of something that will never die. He quotes the Old Testament. He says, all people are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. This world we live in, there are flowers in the desert. There are flowers. We do grow. We do accomplish some pretty amazing things. Y'all have accomplished some amazing things. The grass withers, though, and the flowers eventually fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. What Peter is saying, what the apostles say over and over and over again, is that you have hope by the faith that you put in Jesus, you see it in his life that God is bigger than all things, even death, that there is a future, and you can be a part of it by faith, and it has nothing to do with the circumstances or the hopes of this world. It's very unusual, if not uncomfortable, hope that is not within your own power to secure but secured through the mercy of God, the work of Christ, and your faith. It's uncomfortable, it's unusual, it's unfamiliar that we could have a promise of something so great, so deeply meaningful and satisfying that we have to do nothing for except put our faith in the one who provides the gift. But they repeat this truth again and again and again and again throughout the New Testament, and they hearken to a foreshadowing of the Old Testament. This is the, always the way that God has intended for it to be. He loves us so much that he wants us to be with him, 
but it is not within our power, and so he provides it. He just provides it. It's a gift. By faith. All the letters that we have from those early times and those disciples of Christ say pretty much the same thing. They talk about this new hope that is beyond the hopes that we have in this world. And then it talks about how to apply that in this world that we live in. How is it that we live with the hopes that are ours in these desert-like conditions of life? And I'm barely going to scratch the surface here. Chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, this is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is saying to us, stop the destructive life that is required of you when you pursue those other hopes. No way to get to those ultimate, inhibiting most of these other kinds of character deficiencies. He's saying you need to put that stuff aside, rid yourselves of all of these things, and instead, like a newborn baby, crave pure spiritual milk. He's referring to this simple message of the gospel that you can have hope in Christ by faith. You can rebuild yourself, in a sense, on this new foundation that's expressed in the gospel. We all put our hopes somewhere. In actuality, in actuality some kind of a God, really. Think just for a moment of the, you know, the Greek gods. All of those gods represent some kind of a pursuit in this world. They had it pretty well right, even way back then. All the things that we pursue in life, they assigned to some god, and that god distributed those things as he or she felt fit. I think I listed them. You can like, see a list of these things. You can look it up. Look at that. you got Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Does anybody pursue love and beauty and desire above all else? Sure we do. Apollo, the god of music and healing and prophecy. Ares, the god of war and bloodshed. Aramis, the god of the hunt. Uh, you know, you just go right down the line. Intelligence, agricultural, wine, uh, you get metal, you get skills, right? Those things, and many of them are rooted in power. You can see all of the pursuits of life tied up in those gods. In order to pursue those pursuits, we end up living lives of immorality. And he said, instead, live like newborn baby, babies craving pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tested that the Lord is good. Jesus provides a fresh start on a simple foundation of hope. One of the worst things we can do is complicate the gospel. It's not complicated. By faith in Christ, we are given a gift and a future hope that is for sure 
It is a space and a place where all is the way it should be, including you. It also brings purpose and value to this life, but it isn't gained through your own maturity, your own means, your own capability, or even your own character. It is by faith. Peter is saying, return to the gospel. Return to the simplicity of the gospel. Return to what we've been shown and given in Christ, that there is a God. He's in control even of death, that there's a place beyond this one. As our souls tell us, we know this is true. We long for it to be true because it is true. And an invitation to find your true self for the fullness of your humanity, even in this life. We put God on the throne and trust his son. Return, he says, again and again and again in simplicity to this pure spiritual milk, this certain future, this flourishing life. And he contextualizes it in verse 11. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from all these other pursuits. You're going to do this in a desert-like space of life. Don't live that way. Don't live according to those hopes and those aspirations and those pursuits. Trust him. Know that he's at work. Put your hope in him, knowing full well that it's true, and allow him to grow you up in the midst of the desert. A desert context, a difficult space of suffering is ideal for a life of faith to apprehend and demonstrate Christian hope. Let me say that again. The desert context, we have this hope, it's given to us by faith, and Peter says you're going to experience it within the space of what it is like to be in exile in this world that is not the one we are intended for, but in it you can flourish. In it you can actually apprehend all that this hope has for you even now and a way for you to demonstrate this hope to the world who needs it. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm going to probably butcher this story. My wife would correct, you, correct me afterwards and tell you the true story out there in the hallway. But this is the way I remember it. <clears throat> she and I, this is early in our marriage, I think Spencer was maybe, I don't think Shay was around yet. So Spencer was like two. <clears throat> and we were... I guess it's fair to say we were fighting. They were fighting. Wife says rigorous discussion. Spencer says they were fighting. <clears throat> Something was going on, and, and it was very unsettling to Spencer. He was having to experience this energy and this thing with his parents. Um, at the time, he was too going on like, 18, you know, it's like this is what he has always been. <clears throat> and it took us a while to realize that he was saying something about every 10 seconds. And it was, drink milk today. And I didn't even hear it the first few times. 
I don't know if that was the title of the book or it was just or the part of the book. The, the end of the book, we're having this exchange of energy and Spencer's on the floor going, drink milk today. Drink milk today. And finally we realize he's trying to disrupt this and get us to read a book together. It's always fun and good and meaningful to, to read a book and we have fun reading. He's like, how about we drink, that we do this? I think this is God's message in the midst of our desert lives as we're caught up in all these other things. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Drink milk today. I know you're busy. I know this is shocking you, Tammy, but I'm about to finish ahead of time. I know you're busy, and you feel like you're not going to be able to get it all done, and what you are getting done isn't what you want it to be. Drink milk today. Confess the truth. There is a God. By faith, you're a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is hope. It's yours. He'll never let you down. I know some of you can't find that special someone. And for many of you, that special someone is not providing all that you had hoped that they would. Drink milk today. Confess the truth. There is a God. By faith, you're a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. He will never let you down. I know you've accomplished a lot. Many of you have accomplished some very important things, but you're recognizing that some of the things that are most important to you have suffered, and you don't know what you're going to do about it. Drink milk today. Confess what's true. There is a God. By faith, you're a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is hope. He'll never let you down. I know many of you are surprised by the level of fatigue that continues to burden us as a result of the last few years. And the light at the end of the tunnel seems to be flickering. Drink milk today. Confess the truth. There is a God. By faith, you are a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is hope. He will never let you down. Your creativity is failing you. Your mental acuity isn't what it used to be. All those things that got you here seem to be failing you now. Drink milk today. There is a God. By faith, you are a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is hope. It's yours by faith. He'll never let you down. You look around and the world seems to be self-destructing. Contexts and institutions that you trusted and counted on are faltering or they've fallen. Drink milk today. There's a God. 
by faith, you're a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's God. If there is hope, it's yours by faith. He will never let you down. There's a space deep within inside you that cannot be comforted and reassured by the things that you're pursuing and you know it, but you still need that comfort and that reassurance. You don't know how to get it. Drink milk today. There is a God. Let's stand. By faith, you are a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is a hope. He will never let you down. If you believe this, let me ask you to stand. If you're standing, let me tell you this. If you're standing, it's true. There is a God. By faith, you're a child of God. He loves you. He values you. He's got it. There is a hope. It's yours by faith. He will never let you down. He sees you. He's with you. He is pleased with you. He loves you because he loves you. 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 Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. He is good. Amen? He is good.